This show brought to you by Circle of Seven Productions, www.cosproductions.com. Please be sure to subscribe and welcome to our circle. Well, hello, everybody. This is Readers Entertainment Radio, and I am Patricia W. Fisher. And you get a two for this week because I have such incredible organizational skills that I actually actually booked two amazing writers in the same week. So I'm kind of excited because um, both are historical uh, fiction writers, and we had Stephanie Thornton yesterday. And today we have Camille DeMaio, who I have known for quite a few years. And we met through a writer's group, which is one of the best things about writer's groups is these great long-term friendships that you get to keep along with people not only getting why you write, um, but encouraging you when you have all those crazy moments of just trying to get through a scene. So let me tell you about Miss Camille. Camille recently left, or didn't recently, but she was a realtor here in San Antonio, and she's become a full-time writer, along with her husband of 20-plus years. She has, they have four children, and she has a bucket list that is never-ending and uses her adventures to inspire her writing. She studied political science in college but found working on actual campaigns much more fun. She overdoses on goodies at farmer's markets and justifying it by supporting local local bakeries and belts out Broadway tunes whenever the moment strikes. There's almost nothing she wouldn't try, so as long as it doesn't involve heights, roller skates, or anything illegal. Fair. Her newest release, The First Emma, will be available May 4th, and you can pre-order, but while you're there, go ahead and grab her other four amazing books. So, welcome to the show today, Miss Camille DeMaio. How are you, my dear? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So what is it like over on the East Coast right now? Uh, actually, our weather today is beautiful. We had a very rare thunderstorm come through. I actually miss Texas thunderstorms because they would just last all day, and we had thunder, and it was uh-huh. a show, and they just last so briefly here. But we had one yesterday that was actually a decent length, and I, I loved it. After work, I dug in and watched a bunch of old Poirot videos, which is you just need British shows on rainy days. You do. You do. I laugh because years ago I got to go see Sue Grafton um, talk about her latest release, and I don't remember if it, which letter in the alphabet book it was, but she talked about how she was originally from, I think, Kentucky, and uh, may have been Tennessee, but she talked about how they'd have these massive storms, um, and then when she moved to the West Coast, they just didn't have them. So mm-hmm. she always would talk about how she missed that. And then not too long after that, I was at a convention here in San Antonio, and um, this girl, was, she's a very nice girl, but she was from San Francisco, and there had been a big thunderstorm the night before here. And she said, wow, you Texans really do thunderstorms right. I was standing out on my balcony watching all that lightning, talking to my boyfriend on my cell phone, <laughs> and I'm just looking at her like, Okay. <laughs> That's well, I appreciate them do. even more now, not not having them. But we do get four seasons. We get a solid spring and a solid fall and fall colors. Yeah. And so I really do love that. So there's a trade-off. Yeah. Yes. Well, and also what's cool, so you write a lot of historical fiction, but you are living in a historical town now. I am. We live near Colonial Williamsburg, and it's charming. I, we'd love to get there as often as we can. And what's really neat is it's got wide open spaces where you can walk around without even buying a ticket. It's, it's like a huge 
historic park with buildings all over the place. It's just um, amazing. But I write 20, 20th century historical fiction, and so it doesn't right. actually help my writing very much to live there. Maybe someday when I think about the 18th century, I'm in exactly the right location. But um, it, right. it inspires me, but it doesn't really um, feed the research water all that much. <laughs> Right, right. And and with the research, I mean, how long does it usually take you to write a book? I mean, I know you probably have to divide it up with the research versus the actual writing of the book, but how do you usually divide all that? To have about one book a year. So ultimately, um, a book gets written every year. Uh, a bunch of that is definitely interspersed with research, but usually a story idea is in my head for at least two or okay. three years before I dig in at all, because I'm working on something else, but another, sto- another story idea strikes me. So I'll be thinking about it and thinking about it. And I might collect books that support, you know, research books that support it, but it's, it's easily in my head for a good two to three years. And then if it stays, I think, okay, this is worth pursuing. Right. And what has been your biggest surprise? I mean, like, I know that, so your first book um, was inspired by the, the song Eleanor Rigby, correct, from the Beatles. Yes. Um, yes. Okay. And so you started that, and, that, and of course for that you were inspired, and then you had to create the, you know, the fabric of the book, and then um, doing the research, making everything was historically accurate for the time. Um, but then you've gone to other things, um, talked about, you know, his, historic monuments in New York. And, I mean, it, the research has kind of shifted around and changed, correct? It really has. You know, my dream girl just to write a book. It was very singular in my mind. I didn't really think about it as something that was a career, uh, just something I wanted to someday. Uh, my grandmother had started a book. She started a lot of projects and never finished them. And the thing that became my driving force once I had this idea is I don't want my grandkids to find a half-done manuscript someday. And mm-hmm. so that, that's why I finished the book more than any other reason. So, oh, this is great. And that took, that took multiple years between the research because I'd never taken a writing class outside of like high school. I'd never joined a sure. writing group. I, I just didn't have any experience with that. So I wrote this book and after a few years in the normal process, you know, I had an agent, so it sold and it did really well. And on the day of release day, my agent said, well, what's next? And I thought, Oh my gosh, I haven't even <laughs> considered a what's next. I wrote the book that I planned to write. Right. And so that was probably the surprise that, which is crazy because I'm a really big reader. So of course there's readers where I mean, writers where I read everything that they write, but for me, right. I just hadn't thought beyond that. This idea that yeah. my career was, I guess, a surprise. But definitely over the right. years, the way I approach research changes. You refine it. You get better at it. Some things get easier. Then you have new challenges. So there's been, you know, new corners all around. Um, but it, there's some respect. In some respects, it gets easier. Right. Well, and I think initially, and, and, and I'm sure this is project dependent, but not going down that rabbit hole of research because – it's really easy to say, oh, well, let me look up, um, oh, you know, what was a popular food dish at this time? And then you're just like, oh, I had no idea they had, you know, and then here you are, you're off. Um, it, how do you rein yourself in? Do you set a timer? I mean, are you like, I'm only going to look up these things? I mean, how do, how do you do that? I've had to really go in with blinders on, and probably the biggest example is the book that I'm working on right now um, is about some Pan Am flight attendants in the early 1960s, and it started with Uh just knowing I wanted to write about Pan Am, but that 
history spans from the 30s to the 90s, and there are so many fascinating stories, and I have wanted to go down so many routes, but I have said, no, my book takes place in these very limited two years, so I literally don't let my re- myself read anything that doesn't involve those two okay. years because there's okay. so much. So I really look at it with blinders on. And then the other part of it is that I write as I go. I'm so much a pantser. I'm not at all a plotter as much as I'd like to be. Okay. And so I write the story and my, my stories are more character driven than they are dripping with history. Um, it's certainly yeah. part of the setting. Um, but the characters are driving what happens in the story. And so I go research what I need to support that. So I, okay. get it. I get the research as I need it instead of the reverse where I just have 200 books I've read and now I have to figure out a story. <laughs> right, right. Because it's not, well, I think I'd like to write a story about such and such and then you go research versus I want to write a story about this. Oh, and this is when. So you've well, narrowed I have a friend your, your who wrote field a, book, a little. Um, and, yeah, I have a friend who wrote a book about JFK. She literally read 200 books leading up to writing, wow. writing her book. That would drive me crazy. Wow. Oh, I admire her, but that is not my process. <laughs> wow. Wow. 200 books. Wow. That's yep. a lot of books yeah. about JFK. Yeah. Um, so, so your newest book, The First Emma, and anybody who's from Central Texas or San Antonio, this is, should be um, something you should read because the Hotel Emma here in town at the Pearl Brewery um, is we al- I always love to talk about it because it's this beautiful um, hotel and it's got a sexy oh. library. That's all we always say. It's got a sexy library, um, oh, but that's it, <laughs> it is <laughs> it's a very sexy library. But it's a really cool spot to to hang out and to just walk around. Um, and so, tell me how you came about this story of the first Emma. I grew up in Denver, but I was born in San Antonio. I'm a generation San Antonian, and almost all my family was still there. Um, So I grew up going down to San Antonio every year, and we would inevitably go visit the Alamo, which my dad always wanted to do, which meant we were going down the highway, and I would see Pearl Brewery on my right, Uh and it was abandoned, but it was so beautiful such a unique building all sorts of architecture mixed into it and it was just beautiful and it was just something implanted in my head as a kid that what a beautiful old building that's just sitting there empty well many years later we moved to san antonio um, as an adult and uh, still the area when we first got there was quite dilapidated but a few years ago as you know it's really started to spring up and developers got in there and there were, there's a farmer's market and boutiques and restaurants and it's become the very best part of town in my opinion. So I would go every uh-huh. week to the farmer's market and then the building itself, the Pearl Brewery, we, it started to get, it said Hotel Emma on the outside. It still wasn't open, but I thought, wow, they're going to put a hotel here. And when I went in on opening day, you've been there, you know, it takes your breath away. And in fact, it Mass named it one of the best new hotels in the world. It's really it's spectacular. And Cher even tweeted a few months ago, she said it's the best hotel she's ever stayed, stayed in. So you and I are not exaggerating by saying this place is amazing. So right. they had incorporated a lot of the free architecture in, and industrialness into the architecture, which was really cool. But my thought was, which led to the book, who is this Emma that has such a spectacular place named after her. I thought she must have been quite a woman. And so when I learned right. her story, um, I was hooked. And I said, this 
just needs to be a book because nobody in San Antonio even know who, knows who she is, let alone anyone else. So in a nutshell, if I can just uh, give the pitch about who, who I learned Emma was, um, she was uh, in a wheelchair in 1910 after a car accident, and her husband uh, hired two nurses for her. Both of the nurses were named Emma as well. And at this time, Otto, her husband, was a big brewing tycoon. They already had the brewery. It was very successful. They were one of the most wealthy couples in the country. But Otto had these Emma the wife, Emma the two mistresses, and one of the mistresses murdered him. And after he died, Emma the wife took over running the brewery, only to be hit with prohibition in the Great Depression. And the, the industrial and creative and diverse things she did took her brewery through prohibition and great depression. She's one of the only breweries in the country to have survived prohibition because of the innovation that she did. So there's so many details about how remarkable she was up against these crazy obstacles, a woman in business in 1914. That's, that's so unheard of. Uh, so I thought, yes, right. she deserves to have an amazing hotel named after her and she deserves for the world to hear her story. Right. Right. And, you know, I was finding when I was talking to Stephanie yesterday and we were talking about all these different women that are not mentioned in history and, and how do we change that? Um, and it's it's making amazing story. I mean, not making, but telling them their amazing stories um, and putting it out there and talking about it. And, and I think that it would be difficult to put every single person whose story needs to be told in history books for like public school or private school or whatever, but having the information so readily available, I think is, is one of the keys and, and talking about it is a huge one. It really is. And we'll never cover all of the hidden stories that are out there, but as we learn them, we really should be writing their stories because um, you know, we have a long way to go as women. I don't deny that. But you know what? We, we have come a long way. And that's something yeah. I, I'm always an optimist. My husband calls me Pollyanna. <laughs> so and having three daughters, <laughs> I very much am aware that there's a lot of opportunities I want to have uh, continue to be available for them. But when we realize that it's only 100 years ago that we got the vote, we have to realize, like, wow, we've really come a long way. But we also need to know where did we come from? Who were the women that yeah. were the heroes in this circumstance? And there are many. And my books really illuminate those win- women. Now, this is my first about a real-life woman, but mm-hmm. my previous books have characters, who, fictional characters, who've gone through things that are very real. For example, in my book, The Way of Beauty, there's a very, very large storyline in there about a suffragette and Oh my gosh, I did not, I was not aware of all that they endured for us to get the right mm-hmm. to vote. And I've had so many readers tell me I had no idea. So the character may be fictional, but she's placed in very real circumstances. And so, one way or another, I love to illuminate how women overcame challenges um, in this very changing century. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, and, and it's something to note that it was only a hundred about a hundred years ago. It was at eight, in 1918 um, when uh, white women were allowed to vote, and then it was years later that women of color were allowed to vote. So it's 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 all these different slices of history that we can weave into our stories that give all of us. It's like oh, like you're saying, I had no idea. You know, it wasn't just protesting and standing outside with signs until people said, okay, sure. I mean, that it was a lot more. Um, and, and it was, it wasn't pretty. 
It was not no, free at all. No, it was jail time, and it was hunger strikes, and it was forced feeding, and all these things that I just had no idea about. And I've always been somebody who's adamant about going to vote, but writing that book um, really mm-hmm. illuminated that. Um, but on this one with Emma, it, it's not about uh, a voting, but it's very much about a woman in business in 1914 running a huge brewery and then to do mm-hmm. what almost no other brewery in the country could do and navigate it fully through bro- prohibition uh, is remarkable. And well, the funny right. thing is I don't even like beer. <laughs> I don't like beer. But <laughs> I, um, I do wash my hair with it, uh, but I don't really like drinking beer. But it didn't really matter what the product was. It was about what did she do and what did she overcome. Right. It's funny you mentioned beer because I remember my grandmother, um, when we'd roll her hair, and she really wanted her hair to <laughs> last until she got to go to the hairdresser again, we would dip the, the uh, comb in beer. And, you know, uh, oh. she had, obviously, she, she, yeah, and so we would uh, roll it and she'd send her the dryer so it would actually set it, you know, um, and she could get to her next appointment where she could, you know, get all buffed and polished and look pretty. Um, a pretty oh, I never knew uh, about it for that uh, part. Yeah, yeah. So, and, it's, and it's interesting because it's all these, and we think, oh, it was so long ago. It's like it really wasn't. It's like my, my grandmother was born in 19, one of them was born in 1922, and one was born in 1921. And, I mean, my mother's grandparents immigrated from Denmark in 1918. I mean, it's just like there's not, it's not that long ago that this massive shift has happened. Um, and even talking to my kids, I'll talk about, um, you know, Loving versus Virginia uh, comes up every year, and I mention it. Uh, and I said, you have, guys have to realize that was the year I was born. And, and they'll mm-hmm. say, what? I mean, it's, to them, it's like so long ago. Um, but it's like this is in my lifetime. And so uh, telling those stories, I think, are extremely powerful uh, and important so they can connect it. Um, so I when you were researching, did you get to go? Did you go? I know that you had moved when you, when you were going to start mm-hmm. researching this. But you would also um, – had you just kind of walked around and just kind of absorbed the building, like the, the essence of it, when you were just building your story in your head? Oh, I did. And I, I knew that I wanted to write it someday, but at the time we still lived in San Antonio, I had several other books ahead of me, and there's only mm-hmm. so much you can absorb when you're in research mode. So I kind of shelved the idea of digging in too deep. But I did visit the hotel almost every week because I would go to the farmer's market, and then there was a place, there was a place there that serves this amazing Mexican hot chocolate with a marshmallow topping. <laughs> so I was frequently mm-hmm. at the hotel to treat myself. So I soaked up all that I just loved about the ambiance of there, but I actually flew back to San Antonio when I was in the middle of the research stage. The challenge with this, with this book is that there was very, very little available about Emma. There's no books about her, fiction or nonfiction. There were no journals, no diaries, barely any newspaper clippings. Most of the newspaper clippings are about her husband. So the little nutshell that I gave you there is about all that was actually even there to find. And I thought I okay. must be missing something. There's, there's, got to be more information. So I made an appointment to visit with a hotel's historian, and I flew out there and spent time with him, and we, we talked and exchanged what we knew. I mean, there's a few more details. Uh, he sat there at the end of the conversation, and he said, well, I would, I would say that you're now the world's foremost expert on Emma Kaler because you know everything I know. And so wow. I was shocked. I really expect they would have journals or something. And so he put me in touch with um, – 
I believe the person who keeps the archives, and they told me as well, there's nothing. So we know these pieces of her history, which are amazing, but it's a strange book to research because there's no documents like that. And uh, so I, he did though, uh, besides that conversation, I I learned a couple of things that were very good. He did take me on a behind the scenes tour, which was really, really neat. Um, Just into some of the places that would have been her offices, um, just absolutely beautiful. And then he took me up into like the penthouse suites and things that they have a suite called the Emma Kaler suite. And it's, um, it's just amazing. So I enjoyed the behind the scenes tour, but I didn't walk away with tons more information than I started with. Wow. Um, the, oh, the other place that I did go visit was her mansion is still there in San Antonio. You may have been there. It's a big limestone white mansion um, near the, uh, the community college there. So I went there on that trip as well, hoping to get in and at least walk around the mansion, but it's closed for renovation. So I went up to the big porch and I looked in all the windows and I took a lot of pictures through the windows uh, but I wasn't able to get into there either. So it was a very strange book to research. Um, I had to fill some gaps with educated guesses, but I'm really, sure. really happy and proud of how it came out. Wow. Has, when you talked to the historian, was he surprised that anyone was doing research on her? No, it sounds like they've had a few nibbles over the years with people who learned her story and said they wanted to do something with it. But he said nothing ever came from any of it that they were aware of, at least. And I couldn't find anything on her. Um, When I was probably three quarters of the way through writing it, um, I made a post on my social media talking about what I was doing. And there's another author who said, oh, my gosh, I just started researching this because I learned her story and I thought it would be a great book. But it sounds like you're really far into it, so I'm just going to go with another idea. So I think oh, wow. that now with Hotel Emma there and more people are being uh, made aware of the hotel. Um, and the hotel really does play up the history that they do know of her. There's pictures of Emma and so forth. I think more and more people are becoming familiar with the story. Um, but my tie to San Antonio, I guess, just got me in there first. <laughs> oh, maybe so. Um, what um, has, when you were talking and walking around, um, did the uh, you know everyone always talks about hotels and people who've been there and everything else? Did, has anyone anyone reported any hauntings or any weird paranormal activity? Because that always comes up with with places like this. You know, not for Hotel Emma. I've never heard anything associated with that because it was a brewery, and I'm guess, not that a brewery couldn't be haunted, but I think that we think of hauntings in um, in other kind of location so the fact that it was not original it's only recently a hotel so it didn't have that kind of history the previous book that I wrote the beautiful strangers is set at the hotel del coronado in california which has always been a hotel since the 1800s and that very much is haunted and so in fact one of the the first voice you hear in that book um is the voice of the purported ghost there and it's also said that marilyn monroe haunts it so i think something like or, or use the Manger Hotel in San Antonio. Um, that's haunted. Right. Um, so, but the fact that this was a brewery first, I don't know that anything ever happened on its grounds that would lend itself to that kind of war. Right. And did um, and I apologize. I don't know enough about Emma Kohler. Did they not have any children? So, any family that could offer any insight to her her history? One would hope, and that's not how it turned out. So she and Otto did not have any children. And I couldn't find anything 
to tell me whether that was by choice or whether she want, they were unable to conceive. But considering sure. that it was the early 1900s, I opted for the latter because I think it would have been more common than that if they could have children, they would. So I also linked, I also have a storyline in there where she's struggling with infertility. Uh, because I think that really appeals to a modern-day woman, but I think it must have been what they were going through, uh, or it's most likely. So there were no direct descendants to talk to either. They did have a lot of family come in and out of their home, uh, immigrating from Germany. They were uh, very much open their home to family coming in. And I did some pretty deep research on trying to find uh, descendants, you know, great nieces and nephews, and found a few leads I thought could be promising. And then they fizzled. People thought, I think I have an aunt in my line who used to be a brewer, but no, the family doesn't have any information. So that's as far as I got, but it was, it was exhaustive. And that's all I came up with. I do have a hope that as this book comes out, that somebody will read it that just escaped my research scope and said, Oh, I know something I was related. You know, I, she is in my family. This yeah. is what we know, because I'd love to write a blog post in the future that, readers even more but I right. was pretty exhaustive and couldn't find that so it, it I wanted to write just Emma's story so it was just her story but there ended up being sure. such a, an emptiness to some of the research that it ended up becoming a dual timeline so I created a fictional character named Mabel in 1943 mm-hmm. Mabel is the daughter of an alcoholic and so she's a teetotaler and she's hired to write Emma's memoirs in 1943 at, you know, right before Emma dies. So Emma's story Uh ends up being told in that format that she's telling this girl her story as this girl is emerging from World War II and discovering things about herself. And it's such a turning point for women. And I'm actually glad the story was able to take that turn because the character of Mabel is very relatable to the modern woman. And so she ends up becoming really a bridge between the reader of today and, and the story of the early 1900s. So it worked to the story's benefit that I had to create another character to fill a book. Yeah. And, you know, we all want to be the fly on the wall or the narrator as, as someone's story is being told. But you, you're right. Sometimes you do need that bridge to kind of pull us all the way through to pull that thread um, so everyone uh, understands it and relates because, you know, we that 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 thread asks those questions like, well, why did you do that, and why couldn't you, blah blah blah, and it's like, oh, well, because the laws were in place or what have you, um, versus the reader not being able to communicate, as it were, to the characters, um, and so that's that's kind of a cool, um, cool a cool addition to telling her story. Yeah, it had what, to be. <laughs> if I told only Emma's yeah. story, I would have had a best a novella. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and I mean, it's it's really quite fascinating amount that he, you know, he, he was married to a woman named Emma, and then he has two, she has two nurses and these mistresses, and, and everybody's named Emma. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really interesting. Was the, you know, so tell me a little bit about Otto in the, and then his mistress murdered him. Was it an accident? Was it purposeful? And I apologize. I don't, I've read superficially, but I haven't dug deep into his, his, um, his story. The other wrinkle with researching this is that a lot of the records I did find, even regarding Otto's murder, would contradict themselves. So I, oh, there were okay. differing there were dip, I mean, we know that one of the Emma's murdered him. We know it was intentional. I mean, 
And okay. since that, it was not premeditated, but it was not like a, a gun went off and accidentally killed him. It was intentional in that sense. Um, the, the yeah, they didn't both she, reach for the gun, right? No, no. She did have a knife <laughs> mark on her, so there were some suggestions that there was a struggle on both of their on on both their parts. Um, and the the strange thing, it's such a little thing to argue over, is. It seemed to be consistent in my research that what they were fighting over, because she was still a nurse to his wife, that she had mm-hmm. bought a wheelchair for Emma, the wife, and he was angry about the amount of money that she spent. And when she gave him the receipt to be reimbursed, he got angry and it got escalated <laughs> instead of for murdering him. Uh, so it started, with, I mean, uh, there must have been many other underlying things and this little thing just escalated. Um, but I, seem, I found that several times in research. So I thought that's consistent enough and it's specific enough that that probably is how that happened. Uh, there were also okay. some thoughts that he was, um, ready to leave his wife and marry this particular mistress and that she kept refusing him. So that seems to be uh, corroborated pretty well. Um, okay. But uh, it's, it's interesting. A cool, a cool little fact uh, that just made the story even more interesting is that Otto bought a cottage on the south side of town for both mistresses. So both mistress Emma's lived in the same cottage that he provided for them. <laughs> So the story just gets stranger and stranger on Otto's part. <laughs> yeah. And so I read that yeah. in a bit because it, it's, it's stuff that definitely gets woven through the book. Even though I really wanted it to be Emma's story, though, because it was her pioneering right. that I thought was so fascinating. But there are pieces of who Otto was and what he did that were just strange enough that I definitely wove, wove them in, and that was one. Wow. Um, yeah. And, you know, another it's, thing it's interesting. Did, because, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, please. Keep drawing oh, interesting well, facts. Yeah, one more interesting fact. And there was, again, very little about this. So I didn't go into it in depth, but I touched on it. But there used to be this resort in San Antonio at the time called the Hot, Hot Wells uh, Resort. And it had burned down. The owner went bankrupt. And Otto bought it and revitalized this resort. And it, became, it was so popular with the Hollywood crown crowd that there was a train line or a train spur that would go from Hollywood into San Antonio because of Otto's resort that he built. And he used to do things like ostrich races. And there was a movie filmed there. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. He had his hands in a lot of things that were so just range of things. And so I do touch on that, that Emma had something to do with this outlandish resort that Cecil B. DeMille used to come to and so forth. Did you even know that happened in San Antonio? <laughs> no, I had no idea. So she kept all that going after he, he, he died. Yeah, she kept all that going after he died then. The, the uh, resort died. It, yeah. It, it had a heyday. Um, so by the time that Otto died, I don't think much was going on with that anymore. But he did do that for a while. He was... Um, I get the sense, and I, I wrote him to be somebody who was just never satisfied. I mean, he wasn't satisfied with a woman. He wasn't satisfied with one business. He had transportation interests and mining interests. I, I think he, he would have been, I think, a very difficult person to know. I think you could never get him to sit sure. still. <laughs> right, right, and and never finish what he started, which is, you know, yeah, it can be. It's 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 great if you can have your – you know, hand in all of these different uh, ventures and actually finish them. It's, you know, it's always another, if, if 
they're all half done. Yeah. So yeah, that's well, that's like my grandmother. Going back to my grandmother, she had so many unfinished project, projects. I can't list one thing that she ever finished, and I didn't want that to be my legacy for my kids. And that still becomes the the driving factor for finishing anything. So I identify with Emma. I think Emma was very focused and did. She let a lot of those other things go, and she committed herself to the brewery, and she did very well with it. But I don't think she was really going to have any of uh, Otto's myriad of distractions but uh the fact that he had a resort with right. ostrich racing that Cecil B. DeMille used to come to I just thought that happened in my hometown of San Antonio how do we not know this <laughs> yes right this is strange okay yeah um my uncle great uncle Charlie was um had a bunch of friends in Hollywood and I always grew up hearing these different stories and I would go okay sure and you know as a kid um and um there was one that I finally saw the pictures of the people that had actually stayed at his house and he and talked to his wife years ago and she was I was saying so tell me about this weekend that you guys had these people there and she's like oh well you know it was 1955 and um he had some sort of friend directors or somebody that had were filming out in West Texas somewhere and they needed some people to come stay with us for a fourth of July weekend and she was complaining about it because apparently she had to set up a bunch of stuff and um she's talking about it and it ended up being they were filming giant um and so yeah so elizabeth taylor (laughs) and james dean came to stay at their house and i've seen the pictures so in fact some of the pictures um you know that iconic picture that um that james dean is reading the the life magazine with elizabeth taylor on it and elizabeth taylor sleeping next to him on the couch that was at my uncle's Mm -hmm. house so it's really? one of those things I'm like, oh, oh hey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very That's weird. Really cool. But but my um my great 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 aunt, she was talking about how she wasn't always very um complimentary. She's kind of a hard hard edged person. But she talked about how absolutely gorgeous Elizabeth Taylor's eyes were. She said they were truly violet and she was very gracious. Um, and said James Dean um, ate so much ham that she was worried he was going to get <laughs> sick. Um, so she refused to give him any more after certain. She's like, no, forget it, that we're done. Oh, so, wow. Um, <laughs> I love those little stories. Well, is it just yeah. a side note to that, yeah, I'm interviewing all these Pan Am flight attendants um, from that time period, and they're all in their 80s now. There's even somebody I talked to who's in her 90s, and they all have celebrity stories because Pan Am was the yeah. airline. And two of them told me that they had Elizabeth Taylor on their flight several times, and both of these women individually told me how lovely she was as a person and uh-huh. that she was even more beautiful in person than what we saw in the movies. So it's funny that her name came up, but they were just – they had some celebrities they had some very not glowing things to say about, but Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> right. they were so complimentary of. <laughs> so, uh, right. yes, yeah, so that's, that's nice to hear that sort of universally she was thought of well like that. Yeah. And, you know, when you're writing stories like that, um, you know, now yours, the one you're writing now is set much sooner than obviously the, the first Emma. Um, but is it, is it tempting at all for you to write stories about um, the negative parts or do you, try to focus on the positive or do you just kind of mention and that celebrity and don't necessarily mention the name? I mean, how do you feel like you'll put the story together? 
Um, I'm probably not going to delve into celebrity stories in general in my mm-hmm. in my book. Um, I, if I do, it will be positive ones because this is hearsay. And uh, even though I believe these stories are true, some of the ones that they told me, that the purpose is not for them to end up in a book. It's really been conversational. Right. So um, sure. I'm just kind of enjoying those. Uh, but I may have Elizabeth Taylor be a passenger on a flight, and if there's only lovely things to say, then I'll I'll definitely include that. Um, my books don't get too dark. Uh, Before the Rainfalls did um, take place in a Texas women's prison, so there are some dark elements in there, but my outlook is hopeful and optimistic, and I will definitely portray all the difficult things that women did have to endure, but I'm not going to dig so, so deep um, Mm -hmm. as to get dark with it. Um, People know their history in many ways well enough to to know what happened, and we can state it, and we can illustrate that, but I'm, I'm going to always have them looking towards hope. Right. And and I think that's important because right now, especially right now, but I, I mean, books are always escapism. And so we want to have those positive moments, those positive messages, even if we're just hiding behind the pages for, you know, even 10 minutes. That's a, that's a big deal. So tell me and more about... And that's what I read. Your, I don't read the yeah. Right, right. I, I read well, the I mean, and we do and learn. And if I learn something along the way, great. Exactly. Exactly. So tell me why Pan Am, why that, why that time period that you're, that you've picked out. I'm a big fan of Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack. I just love the crooners and I love to travel. I absolutely hate to fly, but I love to travel. And I remember the day of, you know, we'd fly to Rome um, several times when I was a kid on a 747 TWA. And and I did really have a sense of there was a glamour to it. Even in the early 80s, there was still more glamour to it than we have now. Uh, I was on a flight Mm -hmm. in February from L.A. to San Francisco, and there was somebody in their pajamas, bathrobe, and slippers on the flight and I know that's not a, I mean I'll wear yoga pants I'm not it's just not like I dress up for a flight but that was kind of the the bottom of the barrel I've seen on a flight before yeah and it just was so juxtaposed with what we see of an era in that jet set era where it was a really big deal to fly and there's right. just a lot of um glamour surrounding it and I wanted to do that but but I wanted to hit on that before I didn't want to write into the late 60s where we were really immersed in the Vietnam War and the sexual revolution that's just not the era that I write and so I felt like the early 60s was just enough innocence and glamour still to be kind of within my wheelhouse (laughs) Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the later 60s and 70s is for another fiction writer to write. <laughs> right. So tell me, um, how did you start reaching out to flight attendants? Did you post something? Did you write an article? I mean, how do you reach out to them? I just uh, I just got again and tried to find some any kind of Pan Am records. It's, you know, as you're writing, you just do these general searches, and sometimes you just happen upon happen upon something really lucky. And I found this Pan Am website um, that is full of information. It's not it's kind of a very basic website, so it's not visually super exciting, but there's actually tons of information. And I reached out to them and I said, here's what I'm doing. Do you know anybody I can talk to? And they put me in touch with a woman who's the president of something called World Wings International, which is an associate, a philanthropic association of former Pan Am stewardesses. And they actually prefer, mm-hmm. prefer the word stewardesses. Um, the era that they were in really goes for that. 
And so I talked to this woman and uh, she, we just really clicked. And I think the thing that really, because she gets approached by a lot of people, but they're very protective. Uh, She's kind of the gatekeeper Mm -hmm. for this. And I didn't know that what I was going to say unlocked that door, but it did. And I mentioned to her that my style of writing, I don't write anything. I wouldn't be okay with my teenagers or my priest reading. So they're not, my books are PG related. And she breathed a sigh of relief on the other end of the phone. And she said, you don't have any idea how many people approach me. And I realize that what they're writing are mattress romps because we're stewardesses. Mm. That's the impression that there was. And she said, I can't speak to other airlines, but in Pan Am, that is not how it was like. And if that's what they're looking to write, that's fine. But that's not actually accurate to what we were. And so unbeknownst to me, by saying this voluntarily, that seemed to unlock the key. Because then Good. she has, this has been going on for a few months, and she had, keeps emailing me every few weeks. Oh, I talked to another woman. I talked to another woman. You have to talk to her. She was in San Francisco at this time. This one used to spend time in Hong Kong. So I've been spending all this sheltering in place six weeks interviewing these amazing women. And what's so yeah. exciting is, you know, they were stewardesses back in the early 60s, but you had to have your college degree and you had to speak a second language. So imagine women in the early 60s being that accomplished. And now here they are in their late 80s and early 90s. They're, they're their own kind of pioneers. You know, they were yeah. having a career at a time when most women weren't even dreaming of that yet. They were traveling the world when most people never left their town. And so to talk to these women decades later, they're still fascinating. <laughs> so many stories. So um, it's just become this floodgate. They've invited me to come speak next year at their international convention. Um, they helped me secure a grant to go to University of Miami when we can travel again and go. That's where their hub of research is. So it, wow, it was just one, literally one email. <laughs> it became an avalanche wow. of information. So it's been a lot of fun, and it's been a great way to spend all this time at home um, just talking to some of these women. Well, I think, too, and, you know, you, we've all seen it, and, and you, you have StoryCorps and, and everything else that go in and people tell their stories. And I think we all get to the point of, like, why would anybody care, you know, other than my kids, and I've already told them my stories. You know, what, why would anybody care? And it's, like, because it's, you don't know who you're really um, – you know, who you're really talking to in the sense of what they've accomplished. Because to them, it's like, yeah, okay, well, I did it. But you getting in there and saying, tell me your story, that's huge. That's a huge positive impact. It really is. And I just, gosh, of that era, there's so many stories that we haven't unearthed. And I haven't actually found a book out there that's like what I'm attempting to write. And so mm-hmm. they're really excited to get their stories and their lifestyles out there in a historical fiction way. They get a number of approaches about nonfiction, um, but they feel mm-hmm. like there's, I don't want to say limited audience because more people read nonfiction than read fiction, but they just don't have um, a lot of requests that they would want to honor um, to fictionalize it and bring it to the world in this way. But I've learned things all the way from, you know, like I said, crazy celebrity antics all the way down to how they cook scrambled eggs. And mm-hmm. that's so interesting that, you know, they used to cook on the planes. They used to just mm-hmm. cook from raw eggs and they'd have to feed 150 people. And some of them were to order. <laughs> Imagine doing that. So I have a lot of stories just down to that kind of detail that the job involves. So 
Um, wow, you could do blog I posts on each, of, each of the. Yeah, you could do blog posts on each of the it's indiv- quite the interviewees. Of Emma. Yeah, <laughs> this is what's been so weird about having Emma and and this one back to back because there was nothing. I had to dig so deep to find the morsel of information to round up the Emma book. And on Pan Am, I have I'm drowning in research, <laughs> so it's yeah. a really different process. But but I'm enjoying well, it too. I am so excited for all your projects and the newest one, the first Emma, is out May 4th, correct? Uh, May 5th. May 5th, okay. So you have five days to read her other four books, so you should, you know, <laughs> get, get to that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. Please come back when that Pan Am's book is out, and I want to talk to you again. I will do that. Thanks, Patricia. Anytime. This was So if you're looking for Camille DeMaio, she is at her website. You can also find her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Goodreads. All the links are in the write-up of the show. If you want to go ahead and grab Emma, uh, the first Emma, it is out May 5th, and you can pre-order or you can go ahead and order the book, and it will be in your mailbox here pretty quick. And while you are also looking at her at the first Emma, check out her other books. She's got four, so beautiful stories. And if you – Let's see, what else am I thinking of? (laughs) And keep on reading, stay safe, and we will see you guys next time. This show brought to you by Circle of Seven Productions, www.cosproductions.com. Please be sure to subscribe and welcome to our circle.